Hello, I'm Chris Neeland, host of a new podcast, Cult Brand Secrets, brought to you by The Gathering and Evergreen Podcasts. The Gathering is a Forbes top-rated business summit and a masterclass for brand and business leaders looking to reap the benefits of cult-like adoration. Each year, The Gathering brings together disruptors from around the globe to learn from and to celebrate the leaders behind iconic brands like Marvel, Skittles, Beats by Dre, Yeti, and the Dallas Cowboys. For the first time ever, this podcast will give you access to some of the exclusive business leader learnings from the gathering's past events. You know, I have a confession to make, and I've never really admitted this to anyone, but I eat an irresponsible amount of M&Ms. They are my weakness, my kryptonite. You know, just seeing those playful colors of yellows and blues and greens, it creates this Pavlovian response in me that makes my mouth water and I just start craving them. So, you know, while Snickers was the first candy brand that we ever honored at the gathering and Skittles, I think, generated the most buzz because of just the quirkiness of their marketing campaigns, M&M's has my heart. And ironically, all three brands are from the Mars Corporation, which means that that master brand is doing a truly remarkable job of fostering amazing brand leaders. And that organization displays an unrivaled level of courage and creativity within their category. Keep up the great work, Mars. As Nils is gonna explain at the beginning of his 2019 gathering speech, you know, he actually interrupted his Caribbean holiday to fly to Banff in the dead of winter to represent M&Ms at the gathering. And I am so humbled and grateful that busy executives like him are willing to volunteer their time to help our industry learn how to be better marketers. You know, in this case, Nils shares a bit about the product features themselves, as well as how M&Ms aspires to be relevant within culture things like TV shows and music. I encourage you to listen to him and make some notes on how something that was birthed in 1941 as a candy designed for World War II soldiers could really be transformed into what has become the most popular candy in the world. My two cents is that it has something to do with the characters that were introduced in 1954. And in 1995, when they doubled down on those characters, they animated them and they gave them distinct personalities because they really leaned heavily into this cult brand principle of being relatable. So have a listen, and then let's come back and share a few more takeaways. When I heard about the slot at nine o'clock in the morning, I thought the following. I know what you're thinking right now, okay? I know you're thinking, I got out of bed early, not my usual 12 o'clock, just to get here into the room, and what do I see? I see a guy that has no hair, is rather chubby, I'm trying to lose weight, by the way, dressed in black, and is presenting one of the most colorful and fun brands of all, and based on his accent, it sounds like he's freakishly German, right? One of the most humorous countries in the world that you can imagine, based on our history. So. Yes, I'm sorry you have to live with that for the next 25 minutes, but there's a reason for that. I've been coming here from Bonaire, 
lovely island in the Caribbean. 30 degrees Celsius, about 45 degrees difference, I think, versus what we have, 40 here. So really, really nice, spent there some holidays, and I went to some salt fields, and this is what it's all about, right? A lot of people of you like cooking, probably like I do. When you cook, you realize when you cook sweet things, there's always that small pinch of salt that is in every dish to make it rich. That's what I am, okay? In a brand that's all fun, color, humor, you need a solid black-dressed German that's a bit chubby and has no hair <laughs> to balance all of that crap out, right? So that's what my role is, and you'll see when I talk a bit about myself in a second, I've done that for years now on different brands as well. So my energy, I'm, I'm German, I've been in 15 years in, in consumer goods, and it's been a really exciting journey, 10 years P&G, and seven, eight years now in Mars Rickley. I get all my energy, as all of you do, I guess, from my family. My wife, Jennifer, comes from the Philippines. My daily dose of salt, actually, Philippines and German, you can imagine. It's a lot of fun to we have. I have a son that's nine years old, Lucas, love of my life, fantastic. And they gave me a lot of energy. They're right now on the way to the beach, and I hope they have a great day today. So another passion of mine, I'm a huge soccer and football fan. My hometown is Bremen. So my soccer club is Werder Bremen. Some of you might know, most of you might not. Sorry for that. But my team has usually played in the first German league on the lower part of the table, right? Until I moved to Japan. In Japan, I was there. My team was winning championship after championship. And I was like, what the hell is going on? I'm leaving the country. They're winning everything. Came back to Germany, down at the bottom of the table again. So I said, this cannot be the truth. So I talked to my wife and we decided to move to Chicago about one and a half years ago. Now they're top 10 again, all going well. Thank you very much. So that's my soccer team. Very excited about this. Three brands I want to pick on that I've worked on in the past. One brand, when I spent some time in Japan, I worked on a skincare brand called SK2. Premium skincare brand, $100 and above when you buy it. Exciting brand. When I was there, it was like $200, $300 million business. My job was to bring the brand together from three or four markets we played in, make it global. Now it's about, I think, 1.7 or 2 billion a brand. Fantastic brand to work on. Same for Vidal Sassoon. Coming back to the salt principle, obviously I had to end up in hair care at one point in time, as you can imagine. Press conferences always go well when I appear on these things. Um, so I worked on Vidal Sassoon. I completely reframed the whole brand from where it was. You know, it was a bold move. It turned the brand into, at that point in time after the restage, fastest brand of growth in China in the premium haircare segment. Really happy with this. Still my baby when I'm in Asia, when I see it. And last but not least, activation also means to take existing brands and really make them relevant for consumers more tomorrow. That's what I did when I introduced bottles in cars on the extra brand in Germany. So just to give you some ideas of what I've done in the past in the P&G world, in the Rickley world, the Mars world. But I want to talk about M&Ms today. Now, this is clearly modeled after me dancing five years down the road um, and five beers down the road probably as well. So if you want to see that tonight, enjoy. Um, delicious lentils to an iconic entertainment brand. That's what it's all about today. And I just want to give you some ideas of what this is. So first of all, Thank you to The Gathering to have me here. Thank you to BBDO, JKR, amazing agencies to work with and bring all of this to life. When I got the call, you know, you're changing roles in our companies every three, four years. So Mars is not really good at keeping track of what really happened on written format. You have to talk to people and find out what's really making a cult brand a cult brand. And why is M&M's a cult brand? And the first thing that I've heard is we are just lifting spirits, okay? So lifting spirits over 75 years. They're, we've been there for a while, for a couple of years, right? And when you see some examples, you've seen us 
represented a lot of things that are happening in the social space. We've been traveling through what's happening in media and, and social and in other elements already. Fantastic stuff to see. I was in my first consumer group. I remember in M&M's two weeks in the job. And one consumer said like, everything that M&M's touches is for me like, you know, legendary. Well, no pressures, thank you very much. I was sitting there and said, holy crap, that's going to be a fun job to work on. But that's really exciting, right? Also exciting is when you Google or search for M&Ms or candies that are in lyrics of music songs, you see M&Ms comes up at the top. Now, I see on the top of that list is Aqua, so I felt like probably not the best groups as well that are in the list there, but some of them really love. So really relevant, really big. And you see us in a lot of other executions as well. You see us in recipes. You see us in NASCAR, obviously. You see us in baseball. You see us in artworks. And I love specifically Sports Illustrated with Miss Green, so I'll talk about that in a second as well. And even in the last year, I got two calls that are related about M&Ms being a cult brand. Call number one. New Jersey, concert, Eminem figures there, Eminem figures got stolen. People call me, what the hell is going on? <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe somebody had a bit too much to drink, wanted to wake up with red in bed in the next morning. Probably more my dream, to be honest, right? I love that, but you know. They got returned happily, nice media coverage, nice coverage of the brand, and proof of what a cult brand distinctive assets can do. Second one, Disney World and really, really something that shows and proves, you know, how broad the appeal of M&M's is. Have a look at this. This little bugger is still on the loose and stole M&M's product from the store in Disney World. Oh my God, right? So something is working with this brand and I want to use the next 18 minutes to just drill down a bit the three simple principles that, you know, I can probably decode why M&M's is where it is, what we've learned on the way. Three principles, quality, being very distinctive, and last but not least, remaining relevant and stealing a bit of borrowed memory structures. I know that Marvel is here and a lot of others are here, so fantastic for us to learn. Talk about quality, huge, huge, huge importance, as you can imagine. So when you put a bowl of M&Ms into anyone's room, the spirits are lifted, right? People love M&Ms and they love it because they know they get fantastic quality. And when you go to a chocolate factory, and I've got the pleasure to do that, it's a bit different to go to a shampoo factory in a chocolate factory. You go there, it smells fantastic, and the products are amazing, right? They're hot, they're yummy, wonderful. It takes about eight hours to get them done. And, you know, there's, there's very high complexity. We're producing about 400 million M&Ms on a daily basis, right? A person told me, actually, they calculated that we're producing more milk chocolate in M&Ms in the US than the whole country of Switzerland. My God, right? Crazy, crazy stuff and a wonderful place to be. But it's all about breaking it down into quality and really enabling the brand then to travel to other countries. If you've been to Asia, you need to have a product that sustains quality because all of the consumers around the world are going for the highest benchmark possible, right? And that's what you have to deliver. Now, 1941 is where we started. 1941, we started with introducing M&Ms to the world during the war times, right? And this was actually, you know, the communication that was done to the US. Not sure whether I can get that claim now 100% at war through to legal and regulatory nowadays, but it seemed to have worked at that point in time, right? So why is that something, you know, M&Ms as a quality proposition was always there to say, in the past we had chocolate like bars or tablets and they would melt. And very functionally, that claim melts in your mouth, not in your hands is still known for a lot of consumers, right? So that is something that really helped us to get in the hearts of minds of that consumer at that point in time and brought us also into zones where actually humidity and heat are making a big difference and quality makes a big difference for that matter. 
Interesting side story of that, green got very famous during the war times as well. Guess what? It became some called an aphrodisiac. And why is that? The soldiers came back from the war all with big bags of green M&Ms. They came back to their homes and they haven't seen their loved ones for a lot of times, right? So they were putting all the greens into the garden areas. Um, hard to see, as you can imagine. Went into the house, said, kids, I've spread a lot of greens into the garden. Go find them out. Had a lot of time with their wife and it was wonderful to re-engage. So one way to get aphrodisiacs done in the simple way, right? So, but talking about colors, colors is really what makes us proud about this brand. Colors gives you a lot of opportunities. You see here what we're selling in the M&M stores as well, right? So you've got six colors in every pack and colors give you a lot of power to play. 1995, as an example, we actually asked consumers to vote. What color do you want to have in your bag? Over 10 million people, 10 million people voted for blue to be in the back. That's why blue is in the back right now. And it's a very self-confident candy in the character you'll see later on as well. So really, really colors a unique opportunity for us to play with the brand. And then bite-sized format, let me share here. We've got a lot of, as you saw, we started with tubes, right? We had also cones, and then we moved into pouches that we have still today. So bite-sized format coming from Germany is a huge advantage. We had tablets and bars in Germany, you have to break them, it's not easy to use, and so on. In bite-sized, we sometimes also failed. So my most favorite story is um, coming from gum. You know, we had these bottles in gum. We launched in China, very successful in gum. We brought them to Germany. German sales said, ah, don't believe it's going to work. It's going to be too expensive. So ask marketing to test it. So it's failing, they hoped. Put it into a test, worked. Super success, biggest selling story ever. And then the marketing guy said like, oh, why didn't we believe it in the first moment, right? It's this not invented here syndrome. We launched tubes or you know, boxes of chocolate in China. Very successful again. The Germans were smarter this time and said, well, let's launch it now. That was us saying like, oh, let's go in, full Monty. Launched it. What a miserable disaster it was. It's still sitting on the shelves right now and nobody's gonna buy it ever. Why is that? Because we completely underestimated consumption behavior of our consumers at that point in time. The Chinese actually are taking a bottle, take three M&Ms out, close the bottle and put it aside. That's not happening in Europe or in the US. There's very different consumption behavior. So the bottles really didn't work. People brought them, ate them and had a piece of plastic in their hand which they didn't know what to do with, right? So, Good learnings for us on bite size and, and things that work out and sometimes don't the way that you think they should. And last but not least, flavors. So I'm proud to announce in April we're gonna have hazelnut spread coming to the US. Mmm, but it's fantastic. And yes, so it's really gonna be exciting. And we've got tablets and bars already in the markets right now. Try them as fast as you can. They're really yummy. So this really brings you to obviously relevant connections with the consumers right now. Now, what I want to talk a bit more about is distinctive assets. We've created and nurtured key distinctive assets of the brand. And as always, it actually starts with the product. So on the product, you see the M imprint. And in the beginning, in the past, it was really all about talking about quality, as I said before. It's about showing what the product is all about and showing this is only being delivered by M. And by the way, the M&Ms stand for the two founders that created the M&Ms in the first place, with one of them being Forrest Mars, right? So really, really high imprint on talking about quality. It's dubbed to be, you know, our characters obviously are famous, as you know, and they're dubbed to be more famous than Santa Claus or others. Doubt that a bit, still love them a lot. And then you see them actually being portrayed right now as well in five stores, in M&M stores that we have around the world, what I would call the starting of an ecosystem that we're gonna get into even more, right? So 
We've got five stores, we've got 20 million people running through that, lots of products being sold there from merchandise to focus primarily on chocolate, but really building this ecosystem story all around the world and offering my M&Ms, enabling us, for example, to play key M&Ms where you can print your name or put your picture and use them in weddings or for other events that are really relevant and important for you. Characters were introduced in 1954. They started, as you can imagine, black and white in the beginning. Lovely to see because colors don't really play a strong role. And our first characters, you know, the big two ones, the red and yellow, got really famous 1960. Now, in 1995, one of the guys that were really smart, Paul Michaels in our company, decided to heavily invest and move the brand from its functional core to the more emotional and aspirational core, right? So really brought the characters into life and really created what we have right now, the gang, the gang of characters. And they're really, really, you know, portraying what you see um, with this jester archetype in comedy shows. You see Seinfeld, you see Lauren Hardy, you see Friends, for example. All of these characters are actually related to this kind of comedian, to this kind of, you know, jester attitude. That's why it's traveling so easily across most of the markets. When I say most, you're still working very hard on China. It's not that easy to get that jester humor across there. But we're getting there, right? So this is really what the characters are all about. And they lifted us from a functional mean only to the emotional mean and really add a new layer of distinctivity that hasn't been there in the brand before. Now, important to know, at that point in time, we gave up the functional communication, something I believe in, right? Just adding on top will not work for you. You'll have to give up something to move into something new. You have to make bold moves that don't feel good at that point in time. Still, people call me and say, can we not go back to the functional core? But just doing two or three or four things at the same time, it's not going to work. You have to be single-minded, you have to be focused, and you have to be really, really clear on where you want to go. So we have human personalities, comedic archetypes, and we have flaws. So I relate mostly to Orange, actually, he's a bit, you know, worried about everything that's happening and with all the bets that we're taking, there's a positive worriness, you know, positive madness around myself that I'm sharing with Orange. So he's a bit like me. Same haircut as well. So walking, talking, delicious chocolate. And, you know, they're always afraid of being eaten. So when you see the advertising and the communication, always keep that in mind. These poor fellows are always out there and people want to eat them. It's about the quality. It's about being distinctive and being bold on changing distinctive assets. I see people dancing. That's not bad for 9.30 in the morning. And now I want to talk about being relevant and keeping yourself relevant and entertaining over time. Now, how do you do that? You know, ambition is obviously we need to move advertising. We need to move communication and transcend it. And obviously we see what's happening in the world out there. So we need to be also here courageous and, and move ships from one to another. And that's what's happening for us right now. Again, three territories have been way too long in PNG, apparently, because it's always the number three that's in my head. A big piece for us is what we call screen time. Screen time is beginning in the cinema and at the TV screens at home, and that's, that's what I call the past of screen time. Now, screen time today, as you all know, is actually the mobile phones, is the iPads of the world, or as I learned yesterday, toilet advertising. I think it was a new ad or new agency series. Yes, it was fantastic. So th there's more and more screens out there where we can be seen and where we can be active in our communication to our consumers. And last but not least, there's a big piece in my heart that's all about the brand purpose. We've got such a fun brand and there's so many ways to bring that to life in the right way possible to make it relevant. So screen time, you know, we've delighted consumers. We've delighted consumers. That sounds too nice. Anyways, we've loved working with consumers in a way that we actually take borrowed memory structures. So I would love to talk to Marvel here today. 
We've talked with Disney, we've talked with others to really say like, look, what's going on in consumers' minds when we think about movies, when we think about activations, and how can we make our brand relevant in this context as well? So what you see is what we're trying to do is actually, it's a co-creation, right? We are trying to take the gesture attitude to look at what's out there, take the borrowed memory structures from what's out there and make it more relevant and entertaining for the consumers to watch. Because the communication of that is already out in consumers' minds and we're just putting the M&M spin on it, right? So that's something we've done already in the past. We're existing in cinemas. Obviously, a bite-sized format is fitting to that perfectly as well. And now we're moving into new spaces. As media is changing from a cinema format alone, obviously, I'm a big fan of TV series that are running on the Netflixes of this world or on any other format, Google, Amazon for that matter. And as you know, 2019 is the year of Game of Thrones. And my wife is still waiting, I think, for another one month, two months, and then it's starting off. So we've done something like that in Brazil as well. So have a look at what we've done in Brazil when it comes to Game of Thrones. Across the world. Everyone's talking about one single thing. Over the course of six years of Game of Thrones, no family had suffered greater losses than they, the M&Ms. But in the seventh season, they decided to fight back. That's how the number one chocolate in the world took on the number one show on the planet. Hi, Red, the first of his name, the non-square, king of the snacks and desserts, patron of the chocolate field, the one that doesn't melt. Declare war on Game of Thrones. A declaration of war was put out on social media. With each episode, our heroes did their utmost to ensure nobody would watch Game of Thrones. As the story developed, new content was created. News of the battle soon spread like wildfire. And Red and Yellow managed to put Game of Thrones next season off until 2019. At least, that's what they think. So moving on to another example of seasonals, right? So one of the strengths that I love actually on Mars in comparison to PNG is it's very much still rooted in local execution organization. And that gives you a lot of fantastic execution when it comes to M&Ms, right? So this one here is from M&Ms New Zealand. It's all about Halloween. This is the story of how M&M's doubled Halloween sales and became the most talked about candy of the season. An old mansion. It's a brilliant mansion in, in Mount Albert. It's thought to be haunted. You are at Alberton. What brings you there this morning? Because there are some M&M's sitting inside, shall we say, marinating in the ghostly spirit. The best way to celebrate Halloween is at a haunted house. To win Halloween, we didn't change our product. We just gave it a fright. We locked M&M's in New Zealand's most haunted house for 13 days and hooked it up to the longest Facebook live feed in history, breaking their previous record by 12.2 days. We hacked the live feed to make sure things got weird. The feed was linked to our Shopify page, so Halloweeners could order our candy in a single click in three levels of hauntedness. And as our house became the subject of evening news, we reached over a quarter of the nation. Doubling Halloween sales from the previous year and making M&M's the number one most talked about candy of Halloween.
I became a big fan of Halloween since I moved to the US, actually, because not that big in Europe yet, but we're getting there. So last but not least, let's find time to do some good, shall we? So we're, we've been proudly for the last four years actually working with Red Nose Day in the US and the UK, a partner of Walgreens, so fantastic work done there. So as you can imagine, I'm running over time, my German heart is bleeding, but that was fully worth it. So leaving the stage with you and the following thoughts, search for the grain of salt. It's truly worth it, not only for the grain of salt itself, but for all the others. It's really having diversity and all of that. It's really fun. It makes the whole thing so much more enjoyable. Dig for the quality. If you don't have it, you'll go nowhere. If you have no distinctive memories, and if you're not bold enough to change them, it will not going to be long lasting. And if you don't leverage borrowed memory structures and get relevant over time, that's really something that's truly essential for a brand to last for 75 years and actually has been growing for the last 17 years consecutively. So with that, I would like to thank you and close with miles to go before I sleep and lots of sweet memories to keep. Thank you so much, guys. What a great presentation. Um, if you would like to ask a question, please tweet at us with the hashtag gathering M and M. That's M ampersand M. Love using the word ampersand in the morning. Thank you so much for such a wonderful presentation. You have such a long, um, a, a huge amount of experience in marketing. And I'm curious, you know, we learn a lot from things that work. We also learn a lot from things that don't work. Are there any failures or challenges in your career that have really helped you to learn more about how marketing works? There's two things. So, well, three things. One thing I already mentioned, I think the bottle example was a great example um, for where we just tried to readapt of something that has worked and then saw it fails once you have a very different kind of setup with your consumers again as well. There's a lot of things that I've seen in the past where I felt, you know, just doing one thing really right will, will make the whole thing spin. So, for example, there was a belief that just getting innovation really right in the past, mm -hmm. for example, also on a brand like SK2, is enough to really make a brand successful. And especially in the world of today, it's not. You need more. You need a story. Um, you need something that broadens the consumer's thinking of a category. Um, and you really think up and beyond of what the brand is all about. So, for example, for M&Ms, um, a long time ago, actually, we had the aspiration to be the number one in the chocolate category. That just moved on. We are now having a number one aspiration that goes beyond our category. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times where we just focused on our category alone, we failed. Right? So there's a lot of examples on you know, just trying to emulate of what's out there. It's just, it's just not good enough. Mm -hmm. And you were mentioning a lot about how much media has changed and how you're working really hard to keep up with that. Has that also changed the way that you measure success now? Has it changed your KPIs, the way that your team thinks about yep. what is a success? That's a difficult piece, right? So the difficult piece for, for companies, for big companies like us, is that we have very good measures on TV. That's why we're sticking for a long time on TV, right? Because you have a budget. When you prove that TV is working, you can talk to your manager and say, like, let's put a million here. I've proven that it works. Mm -hmm. Once you start moving into digital, we are working and we're having right now first measures, but in the beginning it was very hard to get these measures right. Without having these measures, actually the push to get the investments through and more importantly, to have these investments going up and beyond my own career as we rotate every three and four years, that's something that's really difficult. Right? And that's something where you know, getting these measures is actually as essential as getting the right quality of product out there in the digital world. Mm -hmm. yeah. We have a question from the audience. Um, what, what processes or frameworks are the grain of salt in marketing the M&M brand? 
I think in the M&M's brand, it's one of the things I'd say is like, because we target very broad, right? When you do communication on a brand like M&M's, mm -hmm. it's relatively easy to test that communication within your own group, right? It's, it's easy to sit with the creatives and with the guys from M&M's, everybody will nod their head, that's really funny. Mm -hmm. In the moment where I show it to my dad, the world is changing drastically, right? So, so I think exposing it to the guys that are really out there and probably not the closest of your targets you can imagine. I was working a lot on brands where actually you had a very specific core target and you're talking a lot about your fans and to your fans what to do with the brand. That's great for a lot of brands. A premium skincare brand can do that. For a brand that's targeting broad, you actually have to talk more to people that actually have less of a clue about your brand. These will be the toughest ones, but these will still be the ones that have to work with your communication and buy your product in the end, right? So yeah. that's what I call reach out. For some brands, it's great to reach out to your biggest fans and learn from them. I think for some brands, it's great to reach out to the ones that are really, really not the core of your brand to just see whether the communication does work with them as well. That's such an interesting balance because it seems to me as media has changed, we've had a lot of emphasis on targeting and on making sure you're speaking mm. to exactly the right person at exactly the right time. But it can be easy to forget about the top of that funnel, right? The, yes. the awareness, the consideration, speaking to people who might not even think about you in the first and, place. And that's where, you know, we all believe in Marston. Penetration is one of the key levers, right? And yeah. I grew up in a PNG world where in the beginning targeting of our prime prospects was absolutely key. You had a picture of, you know, who's my target, what is she doing or what is he doing, and what do I have to do to make that product fit perfectly, right? right? And now it's really changing to what do I have to do to make it fit to the 70% of buyers that are probably not buying me 10 times a year, but once or twice per year. Mm. Because that's the majority of people that will swing the business into significant growth versus where we are today. Right. And that's a mind shift change that we've done over the years. That's really interesting. We have another question from the audience, someone who is curious about what, what within the brand guides the new colors that are launched within the standard packs. So is it only consumer votes or are there certain activations where you'd add a color? How do you make that decision? So, Funny enough, there's a lot of discussion on that going on internally as well, right? So standard-wise, we have six colors. Now, if you go out there, for example, in the seasons, let's say of Valentine's, you've got different color sets out there as well. And I'm the guy who's always pushing for at least we need three or four. So there's a minimum color set that has to be out there, mm -hmm. which really has to do with the fact that we are a colorful brand. If you would have a pack that's only one color, yeah. it's not really M&Ms anymore, right? Yeah. So, so the principle on the core brand we will stay with the colors that we have and we don't change actually. For the seasons, we sometimes change, but I want to make sure that 80% you know, of the business of M&M still stays within the six color framework. A good, good friend or I would say mentor of mine said once, you can go bold on one thing, just make sure you make two other things to balance that out again. So if we go bold on one or two colors, we probably have some even broader color sets on the other side to balance all of that out and keep the core of the brand integral. That's really interesting. Another question from the audience, which is a question I love. Some, they want you to talk about humor. Humor being a key... Me. <laughs> being a key pillar to this brand. And what advice that you would give to another brand thinking about using humor in their marketing? What advice to give? First, first advice is, I think you need, obviously, I mean, a lot of that thinking comes from our creative partners, right? It's not that I'm sitting, sitting there and thinking about the next TV copy and saying, like, this is really amusing. That's never going to go on air. So we've, we've got amazing creative people at BBDO to really make that work for us. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, there's a high level of consistency there. I come from a world, as I said, where rotation is the daily business every three or four years. 
but our creatives on, on this brand have stayed for a long, 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 long time. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're great soundboards for whatever we do in a lot of markets, right? So I would really voice out and shout for consistency, get great people on it and get them there for a long time. So they fail and they learn. And only through this process, you will really see what's the core humor of what the brand stands all about, right? And, and I think that's essential. So you need some people at the core that stayed there for a very, very long time. It was humor for M&Ms. And by the way, for a brand like SK2, we had the same thing when it comes to the story build. We had people in Japan that stayed with the brand for 25 years. And the totality, like the whole core history of what the brand really has story-wise developed into. And that, that's really essential. You need some pieces within each brand that stays there for a long time. And then probably some crazy people like me that are rotating around that. Mm. I was interested too in the example of your history with the Wrigley's gum business in Germany. Gum is such an interesting product because it's it's an area where consumer habits have really been changing. How do you approach a product where the relationship with the customer has shifted over time and try to affect a consumer habit that's that's in the midst of a change? So the one thing that I've learned in gum is actually we, we had this high belief that we can actually significantly change consumer habits in Germany, mm. specifically through functional belief. And frankly, that has only worked so-so. So in Germany, we, we position gum a lot as like being good for your teeth. And gum is good for your teeth, don't get me wrong, right? So it's functionally all right. It took us 10 years or so, and still when you ask people nowadays today, they still say it's mostly mouth freshening mm -hmm. rather than good for your teeth. It's coming up, but it's not. So first, I think really changing a consumer behavior will take you ages or something really, really massive to make that happen in our categories. What you can do though is, and that's what I talked about here as well, leverage existing memory structures, existing behaviors, and find your way in. And car is a great example. You, know, you already have a bottle holder in your car. You know, exchanging your drink with a bottle of gum is something very easy to do. Mm. And then you actually consume way more gum versus what you've done before. And so it's really about like finding these sweet spots where the brand has a higher relevance that you can tap into with the right packaging, the right flavor or anything else to really broaden the space of getting more reach with our consumers. Another question from the audience. Uh, this person is interested in how you measure success or failure for a brand sponsorship. This person is particularly interested in your NASCAR sponsorship, mm -hmm. but um, I mean, I'm interested also broadly mm -hmm. in success or failure for sponsorships in general. So, so there's a lot of measures, as you can imagine. So in principle, a starting point of measurement for us is always reach. Right? So we always measure how many people are we able to reach with whatever we're doing as an activity. Mm. Let that be TV, let that be PR, let that be any sponsorship as well. So reach is the first thing. Then on sponsorships, there's always a certain amount of how much can we directly measure impact? And there are some models that we're using to make that happen, i.e. how much does it really impact our sales? And how much is it probably impacting our brand equities? Mm. Right? So a lot of these things that we're doing I would say there's a high percentage of quality data behind it. There is a percentage of we just believe it is the right thing to do as well. Right? Mm -hmm. But these things only sustain if I think there's a meaningful amount of quantitative data. Let it be reach or let it be direct impact on sales. And there are some methodologies that bring us a bit closer to that. That makes sense. We are out of time, but thank you so much for joining us and for such a wonderful presentation. Thank you. So it's exciting to be here. Hope you have a great day. Thank you. That was great. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. 
Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. M&M's has done a masterful job maximizing its screen time. I love how their marketing team spent time with Disney and with Marvel to better understand storytelling and how to best capture people's attention. And their activation with Game of Thrones there in Brazil was so brilliant, it's worth going to YouTube to watch that case study just so you can see the power of those visuals. But the point is this, they aren't just marketing candy. They are creating memories and they're associating themselves with all the many things that we already have deep feelings about. We can learn so much from that because I spend a lot of time with brand leaders who are just way too pragmatic. They obsess about how they're gonna win the weekend or drive some temporary sales metric. And what they fail to realize is that while they are struggling to win these temporary battles, cult brands are out there winning the war. M&M's has grown in popularity and in sales over the past seven decades because they just follow a different type of marketing mandate. They have a different playbook. This podcast and the gathering event itself, they exist to expose courageous and creative brand leaders to run different plays within a different type of playbook. And we're not here just to celebrate and honor these brands who have mastered these plays, but to hopefully educate and motivate all of us to copy those plays and to do similar things. I suggest everyone go and do themselves a big favor. Go buy a five pound bag of M&Ms, then call your marketing team and your agency partners into a meeting and spend time evaluating and reevaluating your go-to-market strategies. Measure yourself against all eight proven cult brand principles. You know, so much of Eminem's success came from exploiting just one of those eight principles, which we call being relatable. So just imagine what you can do if you seek to apply all eight of them. Good luck. I'm rooting for you. Once again, this is your host, Chris Neeland, and you've been listening to Cult Brand Secrets, where we explore the great speakers and insights shared at the gathering a Forbes top-rated business summit. Learn more about the gathering at cultgathering.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It really helps. Cult Brand Secrets is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Learn more about our podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. Special thanks to Connor Standish and Laura Winter for their assistance in making this podcast possible. Also, I'd like to thank our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, as well as executive producers, David Moss and Bridget Coyne. I'm your host, Chris Nealon. Thanks for listening. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. 
You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.